right, you guys can head out to the head out to the back door. Thanks for coming down today. All right. So um, this morning, um, have a. Uh, it's been a strange road, but um, Dr. Hugh Ross is with us here today. And Dr. Ross, I'm going to invite you to come forward. Um, we've gotten connected through a strange series of, uh, of connections through, um, through some mutual friends. But sounds like Pastor Steve is out there excited for Children's Church, doesn't it? Um, why don't we have a seat? Dr. Ross um, joined us this morning. We had a Sunday school class upstairs in our conversations class, and there were... 30, 32 of us up there, and we got to talk about um, creation and all of that stuff, uh, just kind of what is going on. And it was really kind of, seemed to be God's design to bring you to us today. Um, I'm not going to tell much of your story, but Dr. Ross is a, uh, a scientist by training and trade. He is a Christian believer as well, and all that stuff blows the mind is how it comes together. I would love, would you mind telling us, Dr. Ross, just a little bit of your testimony. How did you, how did you come to this understanding of the Lord and, and how he's now your savior? How, did, how does that work in your life? Well, I was born, raised, and educated in Canada uh, where it's really hard to find Christians. <laughs> Is that right? Uh, I didn't really get to meet Christians until I joined the faculty of Caltech. Oh, Caltech, yes, that bastion of Christianity, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right, right. Well, there's actually quite a few Christians there at okay. uh, Caltech. Uh, but Caltech, I, the long name of Caltech is? California Institute of Technology. Okay. Any okay. graduates from Caltech in the congregation? I didn't think so. Okay. But no, what brought me to faith in Christ is I got interested in astronomy when I was seven years of age. In fact, starting at age seven, I was reading four or five books on physics and astronomy every week. As our seven-year-olds do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I expect yeah. they would. Uh, but that continued all through my growing up years. And when I was 16, I realized the universe must have a beginning. Mm -hmm. If it has a beginning, there's got to be a beginner. And I said, I want to find the cosmic beginner. Didn't really know where to look. I thought, well, probably I ought to read Immanuel Kant and René Descartes. Uh, so I read them and discovered... You had no Christian or church background at this no, point? No, Okay. So, I thought, so you're reading the philosophers. I read the philosophers, discovered they had the wrong concepts of space and time. So uh, <laughs> that's when... It's dangerous when, a, when an astrophysicist reads philosopher. <laughs> I'm sorry. Maybe that's only funny to me. Uh, well, in particular, I found Immanuel Kant to be quite disingenuous because he took the cosmological argument for God chopped it up into tiny pieces and said each piece is inadequate. And I said, but if you put the whole together, you've got a powerful argument. Yeah, onions are terrible on their own, but you put them in a cheesesteak and you that's really right, got that's something. That's right, right? Okay. So that's when I started reading the world's holy books. I looked at the Hindu Vedas, I looked at the Quran, the Buddhist commentaries. Uh, but part of my story was I was given a Gideon Bible in public school. So it was at age 17, I picked up that Gideon Bible and realized right away, this is radically different from the Quran mm. or the Hindu uh, uh, you know, Vedas. And so I began to go through it. And I said, I'm going to put this in the best possible interpretive light, but I'm going to search for provable errors or contradictions like I did in the other holy books. Mm -hmm. The other holy books, I found dozens, if not hundreds, of contradictions and errors. But after 18 months of going through that Gideon Bible, I couldn't find a single provable error or contradiction. Instead, I found hundreds of places where the Bible accurately predicted future scientific discoveries. Mm 
And I want to give credit to the Gideons because the Gideon Bible I got had two pages at the end. Here's what you need to do when you become convinced this is the inspired, inerrant word of God. And basically pointed out that I was a sinner, I was in need of redemption, how Jesus came and made that. And the Gideons don't let you off the hook. They got a place for you to sign your name and date it. Hmm. So I did that. But after studying the Bible for 18 months, I realized committing my life to Jesus Christ was committing to share my faith with other people. Hmm. And I was concerned about all these professors and students because where I was raised, uh, it was very hostile to Christianity. But I went ahead and started sharing my faith. And I discovered something remarkable. When you make that commitment, God paves the way. Mm. And so there was a lab partner. He became the chairman of the physics department at the University of Alberta. Uh, but a few days after I became a Christian, he says, Hugh, I can tell that you want to say something to me. <laughs> but, you know, I need to say something first. I've been going through struggles in my life I've not talked to anybody about. Hugh, do you know anybody in this campus who knows anything about God? And that started a four-hour conversation. So, yep. and, so, and that just proved to me what you see in 1 Peter 3.15. If you will prepare good reasons for your faith and hope in Jesus Christ and can do that with gentleness and respect, God will supernaturally bring people to you mm -hmm. that he is prepared to hear and receive. Mm -hmm. So just like you see in the book of Acts, how God put Peter and Cornelius together, I've seen that happen hundreds of times in my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, to give you one example, I travel a lot. And so I'm on airplanes and in waiting rooms at airports. Over half the conversations I have with strangers are with people with doctoral degrees in theology or doctoral degrees in science. And you and I both know that doesn't make up 50% of the American flying public. Right. God knows who they are, he knows who I am, and he puts us together and I've had the privilege of seeing many of them come to faith in Christ. Well, and, and you've done some really interesting work since then. We have uh, on the screen behind us, and you can see it in the back, um, your website or your group's website, Reasons to Believe, is not it's, just you. Yeah, it's uh, not just me. As a matter of fact, we have developed a community of uh, doctoral scholars all around the world. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to build a team of 1,000 doctoral-level scholars who are not only committed to share their faith with their students, but with their peers. Because mm -hmm. we believe if we can see these scholars bringing their peers to faith in Christ, it'll have a trickle-down effect that'll affect the entire world. And so right now we're above 200 scholars. Our goal is to get to 1,000. Mm -hmm. So like next month I'm traveling to India to speak to our team over there in uh, India. There's got to be 800 scholars in India that are just hungry for Jesus. Oh, well, I think there's more than that. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a... And, you know... As hungry as people are here in America, we see even a greater hunger overseas. So mm -hmm. we're committed. And our whole goal is God has given us two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. What we do at Reasons to Believe is we take the book of nature to bring people to the book of scripture and into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So science to us is a tool uh, to bring the gospel into people's hearts. Kind of as Romans 1 says, all of creation points to... Well, everyone the truth has of God. seen creation. Not mm -hmm. everybody has looked at the Bible, but they've all right. seen creation. And so we want to get people to the Bible, and uh, we use that as a tool. And so at reasons.org, and, and then Ross, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of resources there. So you guys check it out if you want to. 
Um, but one of the things, one of the concerns that I've heard sometimes from Christians is um, a, uh, a nervousness about, especially about our kids, um, getting, getting too smart, getting too, you know, too educated that, that, that's going to cause them to, to kind of question all their foundations and then their faith foundation erodes away. That's a concern that I hear some people lift. What I hear you saying is that as you dug into a scientific search for truth, that helped you to lead to God. How, how can we understand or, or what can we be looking out for so that we can better understand that, that science, good science and good theology are not at odds but, but come together? How, how do you talk about that? Well, I mean, look at Paul. I mean, there wasn't a greater scholar in his day than the Apostle Paul. Hmm. And he was the one that said, worship the Lord your God with all of your mind. And so all of us should be engaging our mind as a tool to get closer to God. Mm -hmm. Or to know the mind of God. How do you do that? You've got to use your mind. Mm -hmm. And so I tell people, send your children to the best institutions they can get into. And it's been my experience that it's at MIT, Caltech, and Berkeley where you're more likely to find Christian professors. It's the junior colleges I worry about. Mm. Had any of you ever kind of thought about it that way? That's, that's different than some of our assumptions, wouldn't it be? Well, um, there, there are committed believers at the highest levels of education, literally around the world. And the greater the reputation, the more likely you are to find them. And so I was stunned by just, well, what I saw at Caltech, very committed believers amongst the scientific community, also very committed atheists. Mm. In fact, I had to share an office with an atheist, mm -hmm. and he saw the Bible on my desk. So every day he would ask me a question and ridicule the Bible. That went on for a year and a half, and then he finally told the other atheists there at Caltech, I can't ridicule the Bible anymore. I can't ridicule Hugh Ross because last night I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Hmm. So. And, and I, I appreciate you sharing that because I think um, all of us are very aware of the struggles in our lives, right, with the people around us who are not believers and just what that looks like. And, and, um, and frankly, probably most of us have a lot of assumptions about what is happening in some of those faculty rooms and in the labs. Uh, it's exciting to hear that God is at work there as well, um, with people with all kinds of different experiences and backgrounds, God comes through, and, and I hear you continue to give credit to God, so, so thank you. Um, you've still got a microphone here for, for a minute or two. What do you need to tell us? What do we need to hear today? Well, God's given us good reasons. Use those reasons, and when you share your faith, and by the way, what I tell people in our church, I serve on the pastoral staff of a church between JPL and Caltech. It's you know, an interesting church, to say the least. Uh, but what I share with people is that it, to really have a strong faith, you need to see God performing miracles in your life. And there's one guarantee, 1 Peter 3.15. Prepare the good reasons. Not the good reasons that you need, but the good reasons that the people you know are not yet followers of Jesus Christ need. Ask questions. Find out what their barriers are. Prepare those good reasons. Share them with gentleness and respect, and you'll see God doing amazing miracles in your life. And it's my experience as a pastor, we all need to have those miraculous encounters on an ongoing basis for our faith to grow and grow as days go by. And that's my passion. I want everybody 
to be experiencing those kinds of miracles. And uh, so the book of Acts is not over. We're still in the book of Acts. Hmm. We all need to experience the book of Acts on an ongoing basis. And yes, reasons.org slash Ross, you go there, you can get free chapters of a number of my books. I'm now working on book number 23, uh, but we make available, I think it's nine of my books for free chapter giveaways. All right. Dr. Ross, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Praise to God for all the work that is happening um, here in our community, but also in your community and in corners of academia. May God continue to be praised. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Again, it was an interesting series of events that, uh, that just brought Dr. Ross into our neighborhood today, and so it was fun to be able to kind of chat with him and, and pick his brain. And um, are any of you encouraged to know that God is still working among really smart people? Um, God, um, God has an amazing way of getting through to us, regardless of our background, where we come from, how we're thinking. Um, the, the Spirit moves where the Spirit moves, and so praise God for, for all of His work. Um, and actually, that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. There are a number of things that are coming together in a, in a really fun God kind of way this morning. Um, we're going to be talking about this kind of stuff in Acts chapter 17. Um, so if you have a Bible or if you have, uh, if you have a device that you'd like to follow along, uh, you can follow along on the screen too. Um, we're going to get into Acts chapter 17. This was when Paul addresses a group called the Areopagus. Uh, we're going to get there in just a minute, but I, I want to ask you a question first. As you're getting ready to, to find Acts 17 in your Bible, it's, it's back, it's about 80% of the way through the Bible, towards the back there. I wonder, how have you been striving for restoration this week? Last Sunday, um, as I preached, I, I talked about 2 Corinthians 13, 11, where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and Paul said, basically, give God praise for everything, but strive for restoration. Some versions of Scripture say, strive for perfection. And that perfection is not something that we earn on our own, but it's seeking after God so that God can do something in us to make us perfect in his eyes, to make us be restored. So I wanted to ask you, how have you been striving for restoration this week? Have you been thinking about that? Have you been working to that? And, and I know for some people and sometimes phrases like that can sound kind of churchy or technical. What, what is that about, striving for restoration? Well, let me give you an example. Um, I've been striving for restoration the last couple of days, and this might be strange, but um, I've been waiting to see what the weather was going to be like today. Um, Thursday morning, um, I was talking with Susan Stotzfus on our fellowship team and talking to Gene uh, and Chad on our, on our AV crew here with the, with, with the worship team. We were talking about what are we going to do today? Today, September 10th, we are going to have our tailgate party, our outdoor worship service, and then chili cook-off and french fries and all that stuff outside. We're looking forward to it. It's, I think this was the, is the 17th year that we've been working at that. How many of you were at the very first tailgate party at Media Mennonite Church? How many of you remember that? Yeah, a number of you do, but so many of you don't. I'm glad that you all have joined us in the last 17 years. But on Thursday morning, we were talking, and we knew that with food prep and with setting up an outdoor service and with um, our outside tent that got damaged in the storm a number of, a number of weeks ago, um, we were talking about the logistics, and we could see on the, 
weather forecast that the chance of rain and storms for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday looked like a big chance. What do you do with that? When I was a kid, I used to get so annoyed with that school superintendent who would not call the right days off if it was snowy or not snowy. And we'd end up staying home on days that hardly anything happened. And other days, we wouldn't get an announcement until the last minute that school's canceled, even though there was a foot of snow on the ground. I used to get so aggravated at that superintendent until I had to start thinking about tailgate parties. And we talked, and, and on Thursday morning, as we all talked together, it really looked like, okay, we ought to postpone this thing. It just looks like with the prep and the tech, that it was going to be too difficult to be outside. And um, that's not a big deal, right? Like, like, we're still going to be able to have an outdoor service sometime here in the next couple weeks. It's, it's not a big problem. We can just move inside, and here we still have a worship service. This is not the kind of stuff that makes or breaks the history of the world. But I stressed over that these last three days. I mean, just, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I looked at the weather forecast more in the last three days, and I've been hoping for rain for a while because it's getting really dry out there, isn't it? But I was hoping for rain more and more and more because I want to be right. <laughs> and, and I know this is not like Jesse's therapy time, but I'll just tell you, one of, one of my struggles one, is I want to be right. Like, all the time. I want to make the right decision all the time. I want to have the right answer all the time. I want to have the right response all the time. And I know you do too. I know that there are none of you walking around saying, you know, I'm going to be wrong half the time today. None of us do that, although some of us stumble into that. I, I have, if I, if I would just speak casually, I would say I have this need to be right. And that goes all the way back, I think, to when I was a little kid. I can remember being a little kid in school. I wanted to, be, I wanted to get the best grade on the test. I wanted, to, I wanted to be the first one done. Me and Jeff Stack used to race at addition tests in second grade. And when we were done with our test, we would put our pencil down loudly so that the other one knew that we were done first. And then if we got any wrong, that was minus. And, then you, and this was in second grade. I, there is something in me that just gets such a charge out of being right. Do you guys remember in high school when the teacher, I don't know if they do this anymore with what people have learned about people, but when, when the teacher would put the grades up on the wall for what you got on your biology test, it, it like actually bothered me if I wasn't like up there. I know some of you, that, that's not your thing. I know, we all have our things, right? One of my things is I want to be right. And, and, and frankly, church, I have to let that go. And I've been working for years and I'm growing. I'm growing a lot. But there's still a part of me, there's a flesh in me that wants to be right, that just wants to always do the right thing and, and not ever have to apologize for being wrong, not ever having to admit that I made a mistake. But I have to let go of that desire to be right. I don't want to be defined by that because I know some people who seem like they're always right and they are jerks. I don't want to spend time with them. And this week, the last couple of days, even when it was raining this morning, I have had to ask God into that. And this is what it looks like. If you want to strive after restoration, I'm just kind of giving you an example here because this is what I had to do. I had to say, God, I am thankful for the rain. God, I'm thankful that we made the right call together and that, that we didn't waste what could have been a beautiful morning. Thank you, God, for that. But I had to say to God, God, there is, there is still just a young spot in my heart. There's a tender spot in my heart that has this desire to be right all the time. 
And Jesus, would you please minister to my heart there? Because I don't want to keep carrying that around. I don't want to be a 50-year-old, 60-year-old, 70-year-old guy that is living for people to just tell me, boy, you really called that one. Is that life? I don't want to be an old man who could just look back and say, <laughs> I had more right answers than most. Like, is that life? Really? And yet there's a desire in me often. Now, now here, listen, church, we need to do the best we can to think and pray and be right. In the way that we look at the world and the way that we talk about life, we should always tell the truth. We don't want to just say that error is okay, but do you understand what I'm talking about when I say I want to be right? Because so much of me being right often indicates that other people are wrong. And you see how that gets to be a personal elevation thing if things get funky? And so I've had to say, God, God, the weather will be what it is. You are in control of that. God, our worship service will be what it is. And if it is sunny and beautiful and people say, oh, we could have been outside, God, I can be humble and deal with that. That's not a personal thing. And if the weather rains and everybody says, oh, it's so good we're inside, oh, Lord, that is not my credit to take, and I will be humble. This is the kind of restoration that I've had to strive for this week. And so I've prayed, God, I'm vulnerable in my heart. Jesus, would you please send your Holy Spirit to minister to me? God, would you help me to understand that my value and my worth is not in being right all the time or always making the perfect decision? Lord, help me to believe and know that I have value because you created me, because you have loved me, you have saved me, and you call me son. I bear my heart to you for a minute just to tell you that's what it looks like for me these last couple days to strive for restoration, to be delivered out of that kind of competitiveness, out of that pride and arrogance? What is it that you need to be delivered from? This morning, as I took my morning walk at 6.30 in the morning, and as the rain just fell on me, I rejoiced. Because I didn't need that. But God gave me that. And I knew that as I am God's son and as the ground soaked up this rain like a sponge, I knew that I also got to be part of the team that made the right call. Oh, that, that's the sweet part, right? But it wasn't just all about being right. What is it that you deal with? What is your thing? What is your issue or your, or your duffel bag full of issues? Those things that you don't even maybe know where they came from or why you are that way or what it is. Some of you really know what messed you up in your past, but you know, we, we don't always get clarity on where those things came from. But, but what are the young, what are the tender, what are the vulnerable spots in your heart that God would just love to get a hold of if you would let him? Because I think that a lot of us kind of keep these things at arm's length sometimes and we never think about it. We just kind of keep moving on and pressing on and we carry these tender places with us. A song came to mind this week. A lot of you know it. In the clearing stands a boxer, a fighter by his trade. As I'm getting older, I start to cry more at songs. I don't, it's weird. In the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trade and he carries the reminders of every glove that laid him down or cut him till he cried out in his anger and his shame. I'm leaving, I'm leaving, but the fighter still remains. It's a beautiful song, heartbreaking song. Yes, 
even in your tender spots, you may have the power to still stand, but boy, some of us are, are still crying out in anger and in shame when all God calls us to do is just come to him and lay it down so that we don't have to carry all those reminders of every glove that laid us down. What are you carrying, church? And do you need to carry all that stuff? Do you need to carry all that baggage and, and, and all, of, all of that hurt? Do you, do you need to keep carrying that into your life, really? Let's look at the Bible. Acts chapter 17. There's this story of Paul at the Areopagus. The background is that Paul and his friend Barnabas, who had been working together for a while, they have split up, and certainly there is, there is pain there for both men. We hear about that more as the scriptures unfold. But Paul is traveling at this point, and, and this, is within, this is within a number of years after Jesus had lived and, and died and, and risen again. The church is beginning to, and the apostles are beginning to go out into the world and, and build churches, and the church and the message of the gospel are beginning to spread. And so Paul is traveling with Silas and, and some others, visiting all over the place, planting churches, setting up groups of folks who are going to follow the Lord. He's mostly, mostly... At, According to the accounts in, in the book of Acts, he's mostly visiting the Jewish synagogues and going and arguing there and speaking to people who have a Jewish background, many of whom are beginning to hear about Jesus, but he's arguing there, engaging with Jews, arguing for Jesus, but he'll talk to anybody. And we see this through the first half of the book of Acts. In Acts 17, it opens with Paul being in a Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica, then he moves to another one in Berea, and then a third synagogue in Athens. And so we pick up the story here in Athens. Paul's been in the synagogues, but, but it says in, in Acts, well, let's read it. Acts 17, verse 18. Just listen to this chunk. Listen here. A group of Epicurean and Stoic. So these are really smart people. They're, they're not Christians. They're, they're just thinkers. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Some of them said, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Acts 17, 19 says, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then Acts 17, 21 gives a little bit of clarification for us. It says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So here's the picture. Paul has been speaking in the synagogues. He's traveling all around. He's in Athens, in Greece, and he's arguing in the marketplace for Jesus, talking about the resurrection. And people are hearing this. And in Athens, these are people who like to think about the deep things of all kinds of philosophies. And as they hear Paul talking about Jesus and resurrection, they say, wait, this is different. This Jesus from where? And so there's this Paul, he, he's not speaking in the language of, of the elite upper class at this point. He's, he's talking about this Jesus. And so they say, come to the Areopagus. And this is where the greatest thinkers of that era would have gone. They would have gotten together and talked about what are these ideas around town? And do we need to squash this person or let him keep talking? And so Paul, being heard in the marketplace, is taken to the Areopagus, and there's argument among the scholars as to whether this was a friendly taking or a taking taking. But he was taken to the Areopagus, and here we find ourselves in Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. Imagine just philosophy professors. 
How many of you have ever stood up in a meeting of philosophy professors? Yeah, me neither. We don't want to, but Paul did. And he said to them, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And so here, Paul finds himself in Athens. And by the way, just as you look at the screen, that version capitalized unknown and God because that was what the inscription was. They were not talking there about, at least to their knowledge, they were not talking about the God, capital G God, that we would say is Yahweh, the Lord of heaven. But here he is. He says, look, you guys even have this inscription to an unknown God. He says, you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to tell you about. Was Athens then so different than Oxford now? He said to them, I can see that many of you are very religious, but you don't understand the God who really is. Is that so different than the people in your world? I would like to suggest to you that the people around us, and if you're close enough to drive here, this describes the people around you, I believe. The people around us are very religious, even though, even though many of them are not very Christian. Religion is often described as what people do to try to get close to God or their version of goodness. And so how many people do you know who are religious about the things that they find to be most important? They're not religious so much about how they understand God, but how many people do you know who are religious about their family? Everything else in life might be falling apart, but you say one thing about my boy and I will take you out. Don't you criticize my family, my family's name, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, who was a crook. Don't you call him a crook. That's my family. People are religious sometimes about their families, right? How about their finances? Do you know anybody, anybody in your world who's worshiping their finances? They're worshiping the markets. They're worshiping their investments. They're worshiping what they have finally been able to get. And you know that they're worshiping because they're telling you about it. Oh, people are always talking about their most religious items. But see, religion is not just cornered by the Christian market. There are people who make an idol out of their family. There are people who make an idol out of their finances. I know people who make an idol out of their physical fitness. The most important thing to them is what they're eating and how they're exercising today. Everything else comes after that. You can take away everything, and I'll be late, but I am going to get my workout in. We know people like this, right? Now listen, it is good to value love and look after your family. It is good to be responsible with your finances and be a steward of what God has given. It is good to be physically fit, to be careful about what you eat and to get exercise. God has blessed us with these bodies, but none of these are things that ought to be worshiped. Yet how many people do you know? And this is their religion. Paul says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, but you don't get who the ultimate God is. Is your world like this? I mean, this is not even just a problem outside of the church. This is a problem sometimes inside the church. Reuben, you did a great job kind of priming us today in our devotional time. But I mean, even football, let, let's be honest. How many, of you are, how many of you are organizing your schedule over some game that you're going to or that's going to be on TV? How many of you are obsessively checking your fantasy football lineup? I know for most of you in the room, you're saying, what is he even talking about? But some of you in the room right now are saying, um, what was that? I was checking my fantasy football lineup. Hey, cheer for sports. Have fun. Have a good time with it. But 
I hope that that's not your religion. If that's the thing that begins to order your life, stop it. I mean, stop it. Paul goes on, as he's explaining to 2,000 years ago, these people in Greece, it may seem hard for us to relate, but oh, there's so many similarities. As he's explaining to them who this unknown God is, as he's filling in the blanks, he says this, verse 24 of Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth but does not live in temples built by human hands. And Athens had temples all over the place and and little idols and statues all over the place. Paul said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and doesn't live in these things you made. Verse 25, and God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So Paul is speaking to these philosophers, speaking to these thinkers and says, there is a God who is overall, who has created everything and he doesn't need us to build him some kind of little statue, doesn't need us to build him a temple, doesn't need us to just say the right thing at the right time so that he'll be happy with us. No, this God serves and blesses us by giving life and breath and everything else that we need. God gives all. What does he need from us? When I was coming up through college, when I was first hearing this call to be a pastor, there was a lot of pressure in that. Because here's what I heard over and over in gatherings of young people. And by young people, I mean people who were at that time about my age. So in that kind of 18 to 25 group. Here's what I heard. From all the people that I gathered with, I heard... We grew up in churches that are just social clubs. They just care about being themselves and being together. We've got to be better than that. We've got to take the message of God out into the community. That was the message over and over in the mid-90s in the circles where I was at at Christian colleges and in Lancaster County as young people talked about what it meant to follow Jesus. And I think most of that is true. The message of Christ does have to get out into the world. And there are churches that are not very concerned with that but seem to be wrapped up in other things. But do you know that when I was a young man at 20 and 21 and 22 years old, do you know how much pressure that put on my heart? Because now I have to be going all the time. I have to get out there all the time. I have to be talking to somebody all the time. And if that's not what I'm doing all the time, then I'm wasting my time. And there was an incredible amount of guilt that came along with that kind of encouragement. So much pressure to bring people to God. There was this reaction against the the social club churches or the legalistic churches and and it turned into a pendulum swinging to another kind of legalism that said, well, you just got to be out there all the time. Forget about the church. Paul says, look, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Verse 26, from one man, he made all the nations. Paul goes all the way back to Genesis here, right? From one man he made all the nations so that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Why? Look at verse 27. Why? God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far away from any one of us. Why did God build us? Why did God set this all into motion? Why did God place Adam here? And and from from all of Adam came all of us. Why? Why? So that humans would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Is that the picture of God that you carry in your heart? 
a picture of God who has set everything into motion so that you might seek him, that you might just, I love that little word, it's an English word that's in here, but perhaps, perhaps reach out for him and find it. God, God created us with this hope, with this deep longing and love for us that if I create them and if I set this up and give them all the things that are going to get them to just the right, maybe they'll reach out to me. Maybe they'll respond to me. Maybe they'll finally love me. God did all of this creating so that humans would seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him. Why? Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul said to this group of the Areopagus, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. See, we get to live with this God who, who has lined all this up so that perhaps we would just there's. Do you hear the hopefulness that God puts upon humanity? He says, I want them to reach out to me. I, I want to be close to them. I'm not far away, but they just don't know me. I want them to know me. That takes off some pressure, I hope. Oh, the arguments that we could get into about foreknowledge and foreordination and all that, but look at what the scripture says here. Let's just keep it simple with that for today. Paul, speaking to these people who don't know the Lord, says that God created them so that they would reach out to him. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Right? God wants us to leave our lives behind, leave our sin behind, and turn to him. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him, that is Jesus, from the dead. There will be a day when all things will be set right. There will be a day when justice will be made new. God simply put us in this place now so that perhaps we would reach out to him and we'd be filled and we'd be restored and then we would share this message of hope with all we run into. Even if we find ourselves in Athens among the philosophers at the Areopagus, just tell them about Jesus. Even if you find yourself in a synagogue or a marketplace, tell them about Jesus. You find yourself at Caltech wondering what in the world this life is about. Tell them about Jesus. This is the invitation. God says, do all this. And, and by the way, he says, while you're doing that, I'll be working in you, restoring you, building you, and making you ready for all of this. And Paul, after, after laying this out and after preaching, it says in verse 32 of Acts 17, when they, that is this Areopagus, these thinkers, these people who are wondering what this babbler is talking about, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Oh, church, do you see? Paul preached. He thought. He communicated. And some believed. Some wanted to hear more. Some sneered. Just because your every effort hasn't been met with immediate and radical success does not mean you're doing it wrong. Keep digging into God. Take off the pressure. Be at peace. Be restored. This is the offer. God says, I will work and I will give you a new heart. And if you are arrested or if you are taken to places where you don't know what to say, I will give you the words because I have given you my Holy Spirit to fill you. That when you have repented and turned away from your sin and when you have turned to me and made Jesus your Savior, God says, I've got you. 
Church, how are you striving for restoration this week? Are you seeking after that God who can fill you up for whatever it is that's ahead of you? That's the invitation. Keep seeking God. Keep talking about God, and we'll see who responds. We'll see who want to hear more. And we'll see some who sneer. Can you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to answer us when we call. Thank you, God, for for saving us when we cry out to you. For forgiving us when we repent. And for empowering us when we need your power. Thank you, God. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember how close you are and how much you love us and and, and help us to never get wrapped up in in our own selves so much that we try to do it by ourselves. God, you are good. You are loving and you are kind and you are just. Lord, would you please continue to work in us and work in our world, work in your world, so that more and more people would be close to you and would know you and would live for you. Lord, this is our prayer. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.